As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hi there, thanks for choosing us today. You're listening to the Zonal Marking Podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell and with me as ever, Tom Warville and Michael Cox. Tom, you've been a very busy man on The Athletic site and app in the last week. A lovely breadth to your pieces, in fact. I note that just in the last week alone, you've contributed to pieces on Everton, Rangers, Burnley, Leeds and Sheffield United as well. Yeah, hi Ali. Um, it's been a, it was a busy week. It was a, a different week focusing on some clubs that I perhaps wouldn't have um, have really written about or thought about in a, yeah, a standard week at The Athletic, but really enjoyed it. Um, I thought that the piece with Jordan Campbell on, on Rangers, on Alfredo Morelos is a great piece of analysis from Jordan and, and just a really nice mix of the stats that, that we provide, his analysis work, and then just filling in the gaps as well. Um, I, I love the detail about Morelos's uh, incentivized to play well for Rangers because if they win the league they're all off to Las Vegas at the end of the season. <laughs> I really enjoyed the joint piece that you guys wrote with James Horncastle as well previewing the Inter-Juventus game a really wide-ranging preview of both sides and uh, it was interesting to, to watch the game on Sunday night with that very much at the forefront of my mind having gone into that game not knowing all and everyth- uh, everything about those two sides. Uh, Michael, you were at a game on the weekend, the Chelsea-Manchester United WSL match more specifically, and I was interested to see the result of this game given that we spoke to Katie Wyatt probably five or six weeks ago on this pod about the WSL title race. This was a game between the top two and now there's now a new leader at the top. Yeah, Chelsea leapfrog Manchester United to go back... Uh to what I guess they would think is their rightful place at the top of the league. They're defending champions, of course. Really interesting game. Manchester United came with a very aggressive press. And I thought the game really was about how Chelsea got beyond that. They did it in a few different ways and uh, eventually scored the winning goal from the most kind of direct, basic move. You'll see just the goalkeeper hoofing the ball, long clearance down the pitch, Frank Kirby running onto it 
in behind Amy Turner and producing a very good finish. But yeah, I thought that was kind of an interesting goal uh, in the context of the overall tactical battle. And as someone who is a bit of a weirdo and who's constantly looking for uh, examples of nominative determinism in football. Uh, my favourite one this season before I read your piece was the fact that Accrington Stanley have a young goalkeeper called Toby Savin. Uh, and there was a period of games where he kept a lot of clean sheets. He was doing exactly that. And there's a very good one at the top of the pitch for Manchester United's women's team as well. Yeah, Kristen Press was uh, the player tasked with leading their press. And uh, yeah, it was, was quite effective at it. So uh, yeah, that is very fitting. Love it. Okay, well, all of your writing, both Michael and Tom, is available exclusively on the Athletic site and app. If anyone listening to this pod isn't a subscriber, I would be surprised and a little disappointed, but you can rectify that today by heading to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking. You can sign up for an annual subscription and you'll pay £3.99 a month for the first year. Uh, Michael, let's get into this week's topic, something different, something new each week on the ZM pod. What are we tackling this week? We're going topical. We're going for Mesut Ozil and his legacy at Arsenal. Um, there's obviously been lots of talk about Ozil this season and you know his relationship or lack of it with Mikel Arteta. We want to take a look back at his, uh, what, seven and a half years with Arsenal and look at it statistically and, of course, in terms of tactics, as we always do. There you go. Not a ton of off-pitch chat on this pod. That's not our strength. We'll be looking at Ozil's Arsenal legacy, focusing on the football. And we'll start at the beginning because he signed in the summer of 2013 as a 24-year-old that had already played over 300 senior games uh, for Schalke initially and then Werder Bremen and then, of course, Real Madrid. Michael, just remind me, what was Arsenal's situation when he signed? What do you remember about the, the reaction to their signing of Ozil? I mean, it was a little bit out of the blue, to be honest. I remember it coming just after a North London derby win, 1-0 home to Tottenham. Um, it was a kind of typical Arsenal summer where they hadn't really signed anyone, aside from, I think, Yaya Sanogo and Mathieu Flamini which maybe weren't the most exciting signings. The big surprise was that Arsenal went for a player in his mould. I mean, people were talking about Arsenal needing maybe a centre-back, maybe a central midfielder, probably a goalkeeper, arguably a more prolific goal scorer than Giroud. But Arsenal did have a lot of players in the attacking midfield department. And it really felt like Wenger was trying to double down on Arsenal's strengths rather than necessarily addressing Arsenal's weaknesses, which I think is probably something that was quite typical of Wenger. So it was a bit of a surprise signing and a very exciting one. I mean, for Arsenal to, to break their club record fee three times over for a player who I think had been last three years had been between 11th and 15th in the Ballon d'Or voting. So I think fair to say an unquestionably world-class player. It was very exciting for the Premier League. And I remember his, uh, you know, his first few games, just the the idea of Mesut Ozil in the Premier League was, I think, as excited as I've been about a signing uh, coming to these shores for a long time. He had recorded 54 La Liga assists in three seasons for Real Madrid. That's a, an average of 18 per season uh, spread across three years. Why on earth were Real letting this 24-year-old creative master, why were they letting him go? Classic Real Madrid, I guess. They they decided they needed Gareth Bale. Um, and once they'd focused their minds on him, there was always someone who was going to have to make way. And it ended up being Ozil, despite, as you say, the fact he had a very good record at Real Madrid, a great relationship with Cristiano Ronaldo. Carlo Ancelotti, who was in charge of Real at that time, said he didn't want him to go. Um, but this is what Real Madrid do, you know, they they 
let go of Makaleli when they wanted to bring in Beckham and they let go of Schneider and Robin when they wanted to bring in Kaká and Ronaldo. They do make some of these decisions. Di Maria a little bit later was a similar kind of issue. So yeah, you can pick up, you know, real superstars from Real Madrid for, for reasons that don't always have to do with, uh, you know, football and sometimes I think have a bit more to do with politics and off the field PR and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was a, a really exciting move when, when he came to Arsenal. Tom, uh, exciting move, a player that had racked up the assists, particularly uh, before joining Arsenal. In the early part of his career, what were his numbers like? Did this club record signing hit the ground running? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think so. I mean, his his first season was his second best overall Arsenal in terms of goals and assists per 90. And it took a couple of years, but 2015-16 was obviously his best season, um, 19 assists and, and six goals. But I mean, digging a little bit deeper, we can look at the, the number of chances he created just from open play so not obviously inflated by by set pieces which I think that you know sometimes players can can boost their numbers I think we spoke about this pod before last season I was doing some research around who had the highest expected assists in the Premier League and um, Conor Hurahan was on set pieces and his numbers shot way up which maybe makes you look uh, a bit better than potentially you are in, in terms of creating or what we think of as, as creativity. But yeah, Ozil's no, put up some of the best open play chance creation numbers we've seen in recent Premier League seasons. He's got the second best season ever after Kevin De Bruyne's 2019-20 season. De Bruyne was creating more than three chances um, per 90 from open play, which again is, is, is pretty unheard of. And Ozil's 2.95 per 90 is still you know really, really good. And in kind of that, that top 20 list of chance creators, he's uh, Ozil's featured four times which is more than any other player. Um, so it just goes to show like the the impact he had, the quality he brought to Arsenal was creating in open play at volume consistently. And overall, in his Premier League career, he averaged 3.3 chances per 90, um, which is all more than all but Kevin De Bruyne. And that's even including 2018, 19, 2019-20, when I don't think that we, we saw the Ozil of, of previous years when he was at his absolute best. Michael, what did his arrival mean tactically for Arsenal? How did Wenger get Ozil into this side and, and did it have any impact uh, on the way the team functioned as a whole outside of just Ozil? Yeah, I think it did. Um, like I say, it wasn't necessarily the most obvious signing in terms of addressing a weakness. Santi Cazorla had been Arsenal's player of the season just before Ozil came. It meant that Cazorla was playing, you know, after he came, he was either playing, Cazorla was playing either from the left where he had played a little bit in his first season or in the deeper role, which was new to him and he did actually play on occasion there very, very well. But it did affect his his status, I think, at Arsenal. It also affected Aaron Ramsey because if Cazorla was deep, he couldn't use Ramsey deep as well. So Ramsey started being used on the right flank, despite the fact he was, I'd say, Arsenal's most consistent player at that point and, you know, someone who definitely preferred a central role. And yeah, it did all, it, it all became based around Ozil, really. And I don't think Arsenal necessarily had the players around him to make that work. Tom has some stats, I'm sure, to... Uh, to contradict this, but I'm ne- I was never convinced he really made sense with Olivier Giroud. I think in a way they both want the same kind of players around them. Giroud wants players running off him and going in behind. Ozil wants a runner in behind because he wants someone to play through balls too. Um, and I thought sometimes Arsenal was just a little bit flat and played in front of opponents rather than offering the kind of penetration that I think Arsenal usually offer when they've been at their best or when they were at their best under Wenger. I like Tom that Michael's tried to get in front of you there. He's tried to preempt what you're about to bring to the table <laughs> when we're talking about Ozil and the fit with Giroud specifically. 
Yeah, I've taken a, an elbow in the ribs there, but we'll play on. Um, yeah, Giroud, Giroud's the player that Ozil assisted the most um, in the Premier League with 14. Um, and after that, you've got quite a big gap until Alexis Sanchez on six uh, and then a raft of players on four, respectively. So, um, yeah, even though you know he has assisted Giroud the most, I kind of agree with Coxie from a, a logical point of view. It, it does seem a bit of a an odd player to pair him with. And I do wonder that if he had spent more of his career with someone who, let's say Theo Walcott, was actually fashioned as a very traditional, you know, through-the-middle attacker. Potentially he would have been um, higher up that list. Potentially Sanchez, if they played together a little bit more, would be higher up that list. But then again, there's one surprising stat in here, which is that Ozil only assisted Aubameyang once in the Premier League, uh, which in about three years of playing together is, is crazy, really. It maybe shows that Giroud was just actually the perfect player to pair him with. He sometimes turned some of Ozil's balls, which were kind of, you know, loosely floated and, and not a lot of intention on them. And Giroud could turn them into something really useful and powerful. And he was just so good in the air. His movement was so good at times that, um, I don't know, I think that him and Ozil obviously linked well to score 14 goals between them um, in the Premier League. And yeah, maybe uh, maybe just go to show that, you know, Ozil could have done with a, a slightly different attacker to get the most out of him, but Giroud still, um, still was very, very handy for Arsenal. I mean, following on from what you said, Michael, about the way that Arsenal had to adapt really to to get Ozil in and the fulcrum of their attacking play, the, the phrase luxury player kind of pops into my mind at times when thinking about Ozil. And it's not always a phrase that I like, partly because I think it has different definitions for, for different people. For me, the definition of a luxury player is someone whose qualities are undeniable, but who's presence in a team often comes with compromises being made that might negatively impact the team as a whole uh, and therefore potentially on their results as well. I mean, for example, a player whose lack of mobility or desire to press costs the team out of possession, for example, something that you might not focus on if you if you just focused on a player's technical ability. So is luxury player, that's a term that's probably been mentioned uh, in terms of Ozil a fair few times. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think if, if there's any player in the Premier League over the last few years who you can call a luxury player, I think it probably is Ozil. I think he, he didn't didn't contribute that much without the ball. I think he was actually okay at pressing in terms of when the ball was ahead of him and he was moving up the pitch to shut down. I think when the opposition had long spells of, of possession in midfield, he wasn't really the type of player who'd drop in and, and mark an opposition deep-lying playmaker um, and help Arsenal to get control of the game in that zone. In some of the big games, that meant that Wenger went 4-3-3. He kind of beefed up the midfield with an extra player. And he then moved Ozil wide, which was actually something that Jose Mourinho did quite a lot at Real Madrid. But I think then, you know, you can only do that against certain opponents. If the opposition have a, a fullback who isn't particularly good going forward, that's fine. But I think if you, you know, if you are up against, uh, let's say, an Andy Robertson, then you basically just... You know, there'd be a knock-on effect. You'd just be shifting the problem elsewhere. So, yeah, I, I do think in some games it was difficult to accommodate Ozil. And I think he he's the kind of player who, because of those weaknesses, he always needed to, you know, really offer something tangible going in the other direction and make sure that that risk was, was worth it. And I think in terms of consistency, he probably didn't do that, especially in those big games, which is really when we're talking about him being a luxury player. 
I think he struggled to really influence the the biggest games. Yeah, I think this it didn't really help as well with those that his demeanor was someone that just he moved at times like he wasn't interested. Uh, I think he was very easily got that label, and that's similar to potentially what what William gets at the moment by a lot of Arsenal fans, and well, at least from chatting to to James McDicklis about it, that's very much the case. Um, but looking at the numbers for Ozil, I mean, it definitely does show that he didn't put up a, a really high amount of defensive effort. Um, by tackles and deceptions, he averaged less than two combined per game, which is in the bottom 5% of all midfielders. Again, you know, you could maybe shuffle that down and look down at just central attacking mids or more attacking midfielders, but still the point remains that, you know, he wasn't doing a lot of defensive actions when on the pitch. Okay, well, I mean, we we wanted to do an overview of Ozil, and so far I think we're offering that. But I do want to talk about the good times as well, because it's fair to say that he's the sort of player that, you love to watch in full flow and there were moments, in fact, long stretches where watching Mesut Ozil play for Arsenal was very, very enjoyable. Uh, Michael, is it fair to say the good times, 2015-16 and 2016-17, is that what you would consider to be peak Mesut Ozil? Yeah, probably. Um, if I'm being honest, I don't think he really had a, a completely consistent season at Arsenal. I think 15-16 definitely was his best. That was a season when he got 19 assists. And uh, yeah, as I think Tom mentioned earlier, that was only one off the record, which was held by Thierry Henry now is jointly Omri and De Bruyne. The caveat to that is 16 of those 19 assists happened before the turn of the year. And it kind of summed up Arsenal's campaign. That's the season they... They really should have won the league. I mean, they were up against Leicester City. They beat Leicester both home and away. And they they just fell away massively in in the final couple of months. And I don't know if, if Ozil was a, a cause of that or a symptom of that. I think in the end, he just reflected it. So yeah, 15-16, I'd say, would be his best season. But even then, I think it was ultimately a little bit disappointing by the end. He didn't quite carry his his form from before Christmas into the second half. And really, that, that did cost Arsenal. He did have an excellent assist record, at Tom. Give me a breakdown of the sort of assists that Ozil picked up. Yeah, so, I mean, for a piece on, uh, on the site, I kind of looked to, to map these out and just show the kind of start and end location of each of these passes. And you can actually tease out quite a lot from, from looking at this graphic. I mean, you do see a ton which have come from set pieces, from corners. Um, there's only actually two that you can see that are from kind of within Ozil's own half and playing like a, a through ball onto a, an on-running kind of attacker. Um, a lot of them, interestingly, are kind of played from, I guess, what we call the half spaces into the box and kind of the more penetrative passes that are going towards the centre of the area. And inside the area as well, there's quite a few cutbacks from kind of the left-hand side or the right-hand side of, of the box. So those are kind of cutting that back for, for tap-ins. And some of them I find are quite, I'm watching them, back as well are quite reminiscent of the way that City have, have looked to attack under Guardiola maybe less so this year and more so in seasons past but Arsenal will create an overload and Ozil's job as the assister is is making you know one of the easiest passes that he'll have to make within the game um, and just pass it across the face of goal but some of them are also kind of uh, from a bit deeper out wide and actually really nice kind of drilled in crosses so I think Ozil is a as a crosser, we definitely see that shine through in, in his assists. But also his, his set-piece record is is pretty good. I mean, 15 of his 54 assists come from set-pieces, which is more than I would have expected if I was to hazard a guess to start with. But it does feel overall, you know, assists are, are what he probably will be remembered for. But there's a lot of what Ozil did, which goes beyond the assist. I think, you know, we don't have the numbers for it. Uh, to hand now but I do think he was involved a lot where he's the pass before the pass or more often than not you would find that Urza would be involved in a move before receiving the pass to make the assist and I think he would kind of do a lot of work to create space 
to create his assist in the first place, rather than just his only involvement being that pass for the goal. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you're thinking of Ozil, Michael, with a with fondness in your heart, when you think of Ozil at his best, what do you see? What type of player was he? What sort of actions was he was he making? I see him in a Real Madrid shirt, I think, or maybe a Germany <laughs> shirt. I mean, he's, you know, he's a kind of player who you'd probably say on paper, oh, Jose Mourinho wouldn't like that sort of player. But he played his best football under Jose Mourinho at Real Madrid, which I think probably sums up the fact that he was, at his best, a really good counter-attacking player. That's actually where he, he came to prominence, really, in terms of style for Germany at the 2010 World Cup, when he was just absolutely sensationally exciting with his his movement, with his selflessness, with his ability to kind of delay a pass. He was good against the deep defence. He was very, very good at playing that final pass. But I think, you know, Mourinho really set up his Real Madrid side to play on the counter-attack. And if there are only three or four opportunities like that per game, they really maximised them because of, also because of Ronaldo, of course. I don't think Arsenal were, were quite geared to playing that way on the break under Wenger. And I don't think we saw as many of those type of assists as we did from us at Real Madrid. So yeah, maybe something has slightly changed in the game. There's, there's probably fewer opportunities for big sides to uh, to play on the transition these days. But I think, you know, in the same way that someone like Mohamed Salah is probably best on the break, but is also still good in a variety of situations. Um, the same is probably true of Ozil. But yeah, I would say his best football came on the break at Real Madrid. Yeah, I'm intrigued by the the choice of Madrid there. And it's also, if you kind of go back and watch some of his goals, I mean, I kind of noted in this piece that uh, Ozil has something of an allergy to shooting. <laughs> if we look at kind of the, the smart scout ratings for how often kind of per touch he looks to shoot, they're around one or two out of 99, which essentially says that for the average touch that Ozil has, he's never looking to, to take a shot. Compare that to his kind of Real Madrid days and a lot of what Ozil did so well is, um, I mean, he scored nine goals uh, in one season at Madrid. He scored nine goals as well at Werder um, when he was just 20 years old. And that's more than he scored in a single Premier League season for Arsenal. And a lot of that was him kind of running with the ball and just like passing it into the net very, very coolly and very kind of, I don't know, very mesozily um, to some <laughs> extent. And it's interesting to see that that part of his game kind of we didn't see it a ton at Arsenal and, and it was very much relied to create the chances and not actually score them. Um, 
But I thought that came through a lot at, at Arsenal with this combination play. Obviously, we spoke the assists, the final passes, the pass before the pass. That was all the stuff. The the kind of passing and moving that Ozil did so well for me was was the most fun time to watch him because that was him in 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 kind of flow and when he was most exciting to watch. Whatever we say about him being a luxury player or not, he is certainly a good one for a YouTube compilation. And I will, like I did before this podcast, we'll go straight back to YouTube and start watching more. Uh, Ozil assists after we finish recording here. Uh, Tom, obviously the last few years have been very difficult for Ozil and Arsenal uh, on the pitch individually and as a team uh, and off the pitch as well, certainly with the relationship breaking down. Before those off-field issues took hold, Ozil's drop-off in production, certainly in those assist numbers, was in motion already, probably from the start of 2018 potentially. Um, When you think of the football reasons for that. What sort of things do you consider? I think the way that Arsenal under Wenger were just so good and maybe quite underrated in terms of just how often they would get the ball into the attacking third. We did a piece, James McNicholas and myself, about Arsenal's ball retention a couple of months ago and, and really showed that I think they'd have something like 30 possessions or 35 possessions back in the day, which essentially is 35 chances where the ball's in the final third and you can create a chance or look to score a goal. And now it's down to around 20-25, which... That difference in ten a game is is huge, really. And if Ozil, who thrives on you know needing possession in the attacking third, is seeing the ball less and less in those areas, then he's going to create less. He's going to be less impactful. So it does feel that like he was quite a high usage player, someone who would need a lot of the ball to create chances. And the team changed around him, and that's partly why I'm kind of excited about this this rumored slash you know likely to happen Fanabache move because we might actually finally see Ozil back as a 10 in a team that has a central creative presence and maybe you know we can strike off the list of, of reasons why he declined being you know due to age um due to tactics um it's difficult because playing Fenerbahce in in the Turkish Super League all you know no disrespect intended isn't the Premier League but yeah I, I'm definitely intrigued to see whether it's a, a kind of usage thing, a production thing, if it's based on him just having fewer touches in the areas that matter, which really impacts how, how good he can be. He had played quite a lot of football by the time he was, what, 28, 29, maybe more so than many other players of his ilk. Um, back to the positives, Tom. Ozil in an Arsenal shirt. What's the best moment for you? I've picked out a goal here, which now I'm reading back my notes. feels like it's kind of, I've done Ozil wrong because he's known <laughs> for the assist. But it's a goal against Bournemouth back in, in 2016. And it's a really neat one-two with Giroud. And I think it goes to show both how well Giroud and, and Ozil could link together. Always had his, or seemingly always had a, an eye or a thought on what the next move was and how he could involve himself and play after he's made a pass. And it's a it's a neat one-two between Giroud and um, Ozil in a pretty pack box Ozil picks it up the angle is really really tight and he kind of passes it into the back of the net and it's just a really nice nice finish and everything just looks so easy and I think that's when Ozil was at his best that's what kind of everything was to him really and what about you Michael I would go for an assist for Aubameyang against Leicester in 2018 which if Tom's stats are to be believed and of course they are to be believed uh, was his only assist for Aubameyang which I find incredible I know they didn't play together for that long but only one assist is incredible. But yeah, it was this brilliant flowing move where he made three contributions. There was a brilliant backheel flick in a kind of holding midfield role out to Guendouzi. Then he ran forward. Then there was a lovely dummy from, I think, a Bellerin pass to Lacazette. And then he ran in behind, got the pass from Lacazette. 
And just as Kasper Schmeichel was coming out, he played a outside of the boot, selfless pass across for an Aubameyang open goal. And it was just like he was doing three completely different jobs. He was being a defensive midfielder and a number 10 and going in behind the defence. And that's the kind of thing I don't think we saw that much from Ozil. I think he was very much a between-the-lines playmaker rather than offering anything in, in kind of deeper or more advanced zones. But yeah, if you want to if you want to find an assist, that's uh, that was brilliant. Not just for the final pass, but for the contribution throughout. It was, I, I think that was actually probably Ozil's best performance for Arsenal as well. He, he really ran the game. And uh, yeah, that would be my abiding memory of him. It feels very zonal marking pod that neither of you chose the goal against Ludo Goretz that uh, so many people remember so fondly and that's why I like doing this with you guys um look we'll start wrapping it up now and ask about a couple of things that aren't necessarily just on Ozil I mean Michael Arsenal as we record are on a very good run uh, in the league but of course <laughs> they've been so poor earlier on in the season that we had to do whole podcasts about just how poor they are and why um, and Ozil's name has cropped up hundreds of times in hundreds of conversations about what's going on for Arsenal and and what their weaknesses are which I uh, I mean it's uh, I, I suppose the off-field issues didn't help this but he's kind of been a bit of an elephant in the room right? Yeah he has I mean to leave out your most probably your most famous your most established most renowned player has been a huge decision from Arteta. And I guess the irony is that if Arsenal signed him when they didn't really need him because they had so many other playmakers, they've now left him out of the side when they don't really have many playmakers at all. Only Willian really, I think, fits that mould. Obviously, he hasn't played very well for Arsenal at all. Now there's a couple of um, you know emerging youngsters like Saka, who's clearly a brilliant player, and uh, Emil Smith-Rowe, who's come into the side in, in what the last month or so. Um, so they've moved on a little bit from that, I suppose. But yeah, it's, it's just been strange that, you know, Arteta obviously felt so strongly about him that he would happily leave out Ozil, even though Arsenal didn't really have an equivalent. And yeah, Arsenal have missed a player like him, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I think Amel Smith-Rowe is probably a good name to include here, just because A, he's, he's been playing so well recently, and B, he is kind of what Coxie said earlier, like Ozil excelled at playing between the lines and when Arsenal lost Iwobi, they lost Mkhitaryan, um, they got in William. They don't really have many players who are comfortable in the centre of the pitch, really, or have played there that often. So I, I, I do think that, yeah, it's it's interesting that you know, for whatever reason Ozil's not played, but they do now have a player in, in Smith-Rowe who could potentially play that, that role a little bit more. And we saw that also with Smith-Rowe and similar to to Ozil as well a lot of Ozil's assists or play would maybe start out wide and finish inside and there was a nice assist for Smith Rowe you know Monday night for, for Saka where he isolates the defender one on one out wide he doesn't really beat him for pace but he also he kind of treats the ball a bit like a hockey player and he kind of rolls it between his feet and then easily kind of moves past him plays a, a really nice ball inside and Saka smashes it into the net so yeah I'm, I'm definitely intrigued to see it's not really a number 10 spot for Arsenal that role but it, and again we're talking about roles and positions again like like last week but um it is very much a position a player in Smith Rowe who who needs to do things that Ozil did um which is going to you know help Arsenal in, in scoring more you know creating more chances and, and scoring more goals Michael what, what have you made of the impact that Smith Rowe's had on this Arsenal side in the last month or so three assists in five games he's clearly a very talented player but I think it's just been the fact that Arsenal have had a presence between the lines I think that's been more important than his identity or I don't think he's done overwhelmingly brilliant things. He's just, Arsenal have had a player in that zone, spreading the play and playing sensible passes. And I think it's been, 
you know, Smith Rowe's been been lucky almost. He's come into a side where the debate is no playmaker versus Smith Rowe rather than an established informed playmaker versus Smith Rowe. I think it's been quite not easy, but I think it's been easier for him to make a really big impact when Arsenal just didn't have anyone like that before. But yeah, I mean, he seems a very talented player, very promising. Uh, young attacking midfielder and I think he's made a huge difference to their play yeah not easy but timely um, they're obviously very different players Emil Smith-Rowe and Meza Ozil and their, their skill set and I think this is a time especially after our discussion on midfield roles and how we define them uh, to talk about that uh, in the context of those two I want to place or rather Michael I want to ask you to place Urzo in the conversation about number 10s in the modern game. How do you view his career in this context? One of the more high-profile number 10s, certainly in the 2010s. Yeah, I think in 2010, he was the poster boy for the, the modern number 10 as it was then. Um, but the position seems to evolve all the time. And now it seems like he's not, you know, he's actually behind the times. He's, he's a pure <laughs> assister. He, he didn't drop deep and help dominate the game, the way that, uh, I don't know, Kevin De Bruyne does. He didn't score goals the way that Bruno Fernandes does. He's probably not quite good enough without the ball to play in a, you know, a real compact defensive pressing side. And, and now he just doesn't feel modern at all. And it's probably hard to separate his qualities and his role from the sense that at times his, his maybe his attitude wasn't right. Maybe his heart wasn't in it. Certainly both Emery um, and Arteta found him very difficult to deal with. He's an individual case rather than someone who is completely emblematic of what the number 10 is doing. But we do tend to talk about great classic number 10s as, you know, either we don't see them around anymore or, or we say, oh, he could have been a better player um, or he could have achieved more. And I think Ozil's probably in the latter category. Um, often it's kind of off the field things that hold back these kind of enigmatic players. But I think for Ozil, there were some unfair weaknesses that meant he didn't quite achieve what he might have done at Arsenal. But of course, we can't finish talking about Ozil. And of course, it's not the end of his career. And we're going to mention Fenerbahce in just a second. But um, while he was an Arsenal player, he had his greatest moment as a football player in, in lifting the, the World Cup with Germany. Uh, Michael, what do you remember about his role in that Germany side that won the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, obviously he won the World Cup. I think he was he was slightly sidelined compared to his role in previous tournaments where, you know, 2010 he was fantastic, 2012 he was brilliant as well. He was a little bit of a victim of a, a late system change from Yogi Love, and it meant that he played from the left, which he, he doesn't particularly enjoy doing. And I think he played well. He, he wasn't really the standout player for Germany. I don't think you would cite him as one of the key men. And I think when they when they had their best moments, actually, at that World Cup, it didn't really involve Ozil. I mean, even the 7-1, all the goals really went down the right with, with Müller and Kadira rather than Ozil, who was on the left. So, yeah, he listen, he, he won the World Cup and, and he played, uh, I think, every game in that. But, yeah, he, he probably wasn't quite um, as dominant as he'd been in 2010 when I was just blown away by how influential he was, particularly in the games against um, Argentina and England in the, the knockout phase. My favourite thing about Ozil at the World Cup in 2014 is that um, certainly before he joined Arsenal, my main image of Ozil, as, as much as it was racking up assists in La Liga, it was just the extent to which Mourinho used to substitute him every single game, or at least that's how it felt. But looking at that that 2014 World Cup, I mean, he was subbed off after 62 minutes against Portugal in the first game, but he did play every game, as you said, and he played the full 120 against Algeria in the round of 16 uh, and against Argentina in the final. So something to certainly something to to look back on and cherish, even if as you say he may not have been a, a, you know one of the let's say three key members of that side so now he joins 
Turkish side Fenerbahce of the Super League and yesterday over a million Fener fans watched his flight path on the app Flight Radar, which is absolutely astounding. And I reckon there's every chance that one of that million uh, is listening to this pod. So, I mean, Michael, what chance do you think he lights it up? in the Super League? Yeah, I think he'll probably be very good. This is maybe not the most uh, tactically minded comment you'll ever hear on this podcast, but I think there's a sense that for Ozil, the crucial thing is he has to want to play. He has to be really motivated. And he seems very keen on Fenerbahce. You know, he, he's at the stage of his career where he could go to a league where, you know, it's just a payday. But I think while he's he's probably getting very good money from, uh, from Fenerbahce, some of those Turkish clubs do spend big money on wages. Um, it's an intense atmosphere. It's a kind of atmosphere where I don't think you know fans would tolerate players who are playing at half pace. And yeah, it's a, I mean it's a competitive division at the top there. There's always a title fight on. The matches against Galatasaray and Besiktas are always very very lively. So I think it's quite interesting. And obviously with his with his background as well, going to Turkey, um, I think that's interesting. I think his 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 wife's in a kind of uh, a similar situation to him in the sense that her parents are Turkish, but she was born outside Turkey. I think I'm right in saying so. For both of them, going to Turkey is, uh, I guess, an interesting lifestyle choice as well. Right. He's got a title battle on his hands, doesn't he, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Fener are second joint with points with Besiktas, but behind on goal difference, uh, and it's a four horse race really there and I think that obviously that's a, a great competitive environment to be um, to be going into uh, and Fener are going to need Ozil's creativity. Um, looking at the kind of assists totals for Fener's squad so far this season, the highest is Kanet Erkin who is a fullback and he's got the most assists with six. I have to admit I've not watched any Erkin this season but I can assume given his position that's from, from crosses or set pieces and, and very different kind of creativity that Ozil himself will offer I it's funny recording this I can't believe we've gone nearly 40 minutes of recording without mentioning Ozil's contract at all but yeah I mean he has he has taken a pay cut to join Fenerbahce it does seem that he is this is a club that he's passionate about it's been one that he's been linked to forever and I think that it's a nice environment for him to go to. I mean, he's got Mbwana Samata or Mametiam in front of him, which will be interesting to see how he links with them. Um, Enna Valencia is out wide, another kind of former Premier League player as well. So yeah, I I, I am kind of intrigued to see how Ozil gets on and, and we'll kind of, maybe we, we check in in a few weeks' time and see how he's doing. Well, thank you both for, for talking me through his legacy at Arsenal and in the Premier League. You would expect that it might be the last time we see him playing uh, at the top level of English football certainly um, but a fascinating player a beautiful player as well at times but it's been really interesting to get your your honest and, and detailed thoughts on on what his legacy was will, will be and the, the different parts of Ozil at Arsenal over seven and a half years. Um, this has been the Zonal Marking Podcast. It's brought to you by The Athletic and all of the Athletic podcasts are available for free and ad-free if you're a subscriber uh, of The Athletic site. Uh, if you go to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking, you can be a subscriber for just £3.99 a month. Uh, and you've got the Zonal Marking Pod, of course, but uh, Ornstein and Chapman do a magnificent podcast. The Business of Sport Pod is part of that with Matt Slater as well. There are tons of club-specific podcasts giving you 
the, the sort of detail and the sort of insight um, that only The Athletic really provides. So please do sign up today and please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed because we've got load of we've got a, a ton of really interesting episodes lined up for you. We'd love to hear some suggestions for you as well and, and feel free to tweet us anytime with any topics you'd like us to cover. And join us again next week on the Zonal Marking Podcast brought to you by The Athletic. The Athletic.